Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from American Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, America's audio producer, and I'm joined today by J.D. Long Garcia, senior editor at America and the author of our feature article in the October issue called The Long Road Home. And that article is about the thousands of Afghan refugees seeking a permanent home in the United States after the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan in 2021. J.D., thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. So, J.D., in your article, you chronicle many stories of refugees from Afghanistan and some of the people who have been accompanying them. And they're all incredibly moving But there was one in particular that I wanted to hear more from, and it's this young boy, Ali, and his foster parents, Mary and Mark. So can you just tell us, how did you first meet this family? Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it. They're they're a beautiful family here in Phoenix, where I live. And uh, I met them through Paul Mulligan, who's the executive director of Catholic Charities here. And they're part of the Catholic Charities Foster Program here. When I met them, I interviewed them first for the story and then got a chance to visit with them in person in their home in Phoenix. And Mary, the mother, has been involved with refugee education for many years now. She's been educating different Christian communities about refugees and a lot of the misconceptions surrounding refugees. And at the same time, she's also welcomed refugees into her home. And their son, Ali, that isn't his real name. He didn't want us to use his real name because of he's afraid of what would happen to his family still in Afghanistan. But he shared his story with us, with America, and it was really a privilege and an honor to be able to share that with our readers. And what are Ali's foster parents, Mary and Mark, like? They're great. They're very fit. <laughs> uh, I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're runners. I, we didn't really get into that, but they, they've got to be in their 30s, I'm kind of thinking. And they have kids. They have biological kids, too. There's two of them, right? Two daughters? Yeah. They had two daughters there who were adorable and were so well-behaved. They gave us so much time. We did kind of, you know, set up like a recording devices in a small room, which used to be Ali's room there at the house. Mm -hmm. And we had creaky chairs and everything. (laughs) It was all super intimate. And what's Ali like? Ali's just seems very humble. He seems like just a very kind spirit. He's 18 years old, you know, wise beyond his years and really compassionate, just a really compassionate person. And he started at the university now and his career, he wants to do, you know, basically spend his career serving others. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned that we placed a recorder inside the family home and this is a slightly unconventional approach. Ordinarily, uh, JD or myself would be there to interview them, but we actually wanted this family to tell their own story and to interview one another. And I think this is important because so often refugees or immigrants are talked about as an abstract political issue. And it's really easy to lose touch with the human dimension. So the fact that we are able to capture a really intimate conversation between family is, I think, important here. But lest we forget that These are humans at the mercy of political decisions and policy making. J.D., can you fill us in on the Afghan Adjustment Act and and maybe what we need to know? Um, Because that does frame 
this very human story? Yeah. So right now there's 75, 76,000 Afghans here in the United States. There are possibly as many as 2 million in surrounding countries closer to Afghanistan that are still waiting for to be admitted to another country. And the ones that are here right now, are most of them are on something called humanitarian parole. So they have legal status here, but technically they don't have refugee status. And there's a lot of benefits that come along with being officially a refugee. And the Afghan Adjustment Act would kind of open the door for them and provide a legal pathway for them to be legal residents here on a permanent basis. And as you'll hear, like it's, it's very, very important. The people that are here in the United States, if they went back to Afghanistan, their lives would be at stake. So it's very important for us to find a way for them to stay here. Mm -hmm. Both the House and the Senate have introduced the Afghan Adjustment Act. It hasn't yet gotten a vote. There is broad bipartisan support for the measure, and we're sort of expecting it to happen sometime this fall, maybe at the end of September, but that it might get added on to another bill that comes up for a vote. But it would facilitate a lot of work that's happening right now on behalf of the Afghan parolees here in the United States. Right. And so if somebody is listening to this story and feels moved to take action, what could they do? Yeah. And the best thing for us to do to in order to support the Afghans here is to call our senators and uh, Congress to let them know that we want a vote for this. We want it now. We want it now. Mm. The U.S. bishops, a lot of the Catholic organizations have been very supportive of this and very vocal of it. But I think it's important that our congressional leaders hear from us to know that we'll support them as they support our new Afghan neighbors. All right. Thank you so much, J.D., for bringing us this story. It's my pleasure. There's so much of scripture that, you know, God's people are refugees in different lands and he moves towards them. God's own son, Jesus, was a refugee. God's heart is for people who lose their homes or lose their countries or are missing their families and, and wants us to be involved with them. This is Mark Keck. He and his wife, Mary, have been fostering refugees for more than five years now. I learned about it through my friend Norma, who was, I think she was in her mid-60s, single, lived in a double-wide trailer. This is Mary Keck. And just what I would say is she lived simply and she loved extravagantly. And she gave so much of her life to care for these young men who didn't have their families anymore. And so when I met her and I saw that, I thought, oh, I could, like, it doesn't take a lot. Like, she doesn't have a lot. Mm -hmm. She's just living her life and they're sitting at the table with her and she's including them and it means a lot. So I kind of just bookmarked that in my brain. Mary and Mark met, started dating, and began batting around the questions lots of young couples ask. Like, if we get married, do you want to have kids? Yeah, probably. Do you want to have, try and have biological kids? Maybe. Or, <laughs> But here's this idea. <laughs> Mary and Mark did get married, and they had two daughters, Rose and Alma. Mary had not only bookmarked the idea of fostering, she'd been active in her community since 2003 and eventually became the executive director of Phoenix Refugee Connections, where she mobilizes Christian churches to walk in love with their refugee neighbors. Mary and Mark had even fostered a teenage girl, Ange, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
and loved the experience. And then one day, Yeah, we were visiting grandpa in California a little over a year ago. You were just there and yeah, the agency called us and said, we have this young 17 year old Afghan boy who needs a home. And they couldn't tell us much more. They needed a night to sleep on it because even though they'd had a positive experience fostering Ange, they were still apprehensive about taking in someone new. And I was hesitant and, you know, I asked some friends, what do you think? And they're like, well, Rose is about to start kindergarten. Yeah, the timing is hard. You can always come up with a thousand excuses. The timing is hard. I don't know who this person is. What if it's dangerous? But then you meet someone and you just slap yourself for being worried and being afraid of what you didn't know before. I was super nervous, but I remember just watching out the window, like for this car to pull up. A jittery excitement filled the house and Ali arrived, somewhat guarded and very serious. The first thing you said was, what do you want me to call you? I think I said, call me whatever you want to call me. I don't know. I was like, okay, here we go. Hmm. I hope this is not going to be the same as the other ones. Ali had previously been placed with other foster families, mostly older adults, and it hadn't been a good fit. But I saw the kids and I was like, okay, there's kids in here. They didn't tell you that there were kids in the home before you moved in? I had no idea. They didn't, they didn't tell you kids. anything about the new parents or anything? I was expecting yeah. like it's going to be another, uh, like an old family like uh, or something like that. It's funny because I feel like from a foster parent's perspective, we're like, gosh, this is such a big risk. But from your perspective, you're risking a lot more because you're not the one in charge in the house either. And so you're going into a house where you don't know who they are, but even without knowing who they are, you've agreed to like submit to them and their rules. And that's a super vulnerable place to be. I just remember it's not as deep as the conversation you two are having. I just remember you talking about, well, for one, we have two young daughters and mom, and it was just, I was like so excited to have a boy in the house. <laughs> and then you came in and you played soccer and you knew like other football teams. And I just thought, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. It was a few weeks, maybe a couple months after you came to live with us and you just popped your head in to the living room one night and just said, uh, can I just, call you mama and papa or like yeah sure and i don't know it it's just something about being given that honor and privilege to be that in your life um, super happy and it makes me cry which is rare that never happened <laughs> um ali can you tell us a little bit about your family in afghanistan so, my family, uh, I have my mom, uh, my three little brother, and a sister in Afghanistan. 
you uh, you ran a grocery store with your dad, right? Yeah, I have a lot of memories with that grocery store. I was pretty young, and so my father would take me to the shop like every morning. I would go with him, and then we would just eat together. Like um, when I was like four, he would just take me to the shop, just stand over there. But I started actually like doing stuff when I was like six or seven. Ali describes a happy childhood spent with friends, riding bikes, and tagging along with his dad to the family-run grocery store. But the atmosphere shifted when the Taliban arrived. There were more rules and restrictions imposed on the community. When anyone defied the Taliban's power, they were brutally punished or killed. Ali recounted a time when he witnessed this as a child. Someone who had resisted the Taliban was dragged in public before the entire community. They took a very blunt knife and then they slipped their throat right in front of us. That was a skin you know that the power is theirs. Then Ali's family received a letter. Or rather, they received a rock thrown through the window with a letter wrapped around it. This note ordered them to stop selling groceries to the American soldiers who lived on base nearby. And then the moment when we received the letter, it was, it was like, I begged my father, we should not do this again. The letter was from the Taliban? Yeah. Ali's father ignored the letter. The grocery store, and its American patrons, provided the main source of income for Ali's family. Within months of receiving the letter, Ali's father went out of town to check on something, and he was never seen again. The family searched for him, but eventually came to believe he'd been kidnapped by the Taliban and would never return. Ali, only 11 years old, took up his father's post at the family grocery store. For safety, an older neighbor accompanied him. But one day, while he was away from the shop, he received an ominous phone call. They don't come to the shop. They just run down your shop and they're looking for you. I went home and told my mom. And she told me, I need to send you to away from here. And you were like 12? Uh, yes, I was not even 12 yet. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost 12. His mother sold everything she owned and gave Ali money to travel out of the country with another family. They moved from Afghanistan to India, to Malaysia, to Indonesia. He recounts running through jungles, past armed guards. We had to go through this jungle for like uh, 15 to 20 minutes. We had to run because our patrol was watching. And once he ran through the jungle, a small boat was waiting to take him to Indonesia. I was really scared to get in that boat because I did not know how to swim. Mm-hmm. So we jumped into the water. I made it to the side of the boat trying to put myself up. But then this guy from the family, he got up and then he he stepped on me and he put me in the, in the mm-hmm. water. I was like, I was struggling to find uh, my way up. But I caught my hand inside of a boat again and then put myself up. So that's mm-hmm. one of the scary things. Like it's just a big ocean. Eventually, Ali was declared a child refugee by the United Nations and came to the United States through a foster care program. But that journey took several years. He crossed the wilderness and lived in shelters without any kind of home, family, or security. So you grew up Muslim and have had a long journey uh, and you've experienced a lot and had to overcome a lot. How would you describe your faith and how that has helped you or guided you through this this journey you've been on. 
for me, I am faithful to God. I feel like whatever I pray, it is connected to Him, and then He's responding. Otherwise, I would be standing here telling the story right now, and there's a lot of mercy that He had given me. Ali attends church with his foster family and says he sees a lot in common between Islam and Christianity. There's a lot of stories that are similar in Bible and Quran. But the faith of his childhood, his mother's faith, remains important to him. I will stay Muslim to one reason because I grew up Muslim and I'm a son of my mom. And she always, always tells me to don't, don't forget to pray, don't forget to remember you God. How do you guys feel like you have grown as a person through the experience of fostering me? I think it's unusual. We've talked about this. It's unusual to have a person come in to your home who you're supposed to be a parent of who's a complete stranger. A lot of the parenting journey is from birth to, you know, going off to college or going off to leave the house and get married and have a job. And I think the way that I've grown is finding joy in the the curiosity, the adventure of getting to know you and getting to know what makes you happy. Um, And I think that's also taught me that even with our two younger daughters, in 10, 12 years, they're going to be in the same situation. And I think you taught me like ways to just remain curious, even with people that you've had long history with, because you're always growing, you're always changing. And I, I feel like it's just such an honor. One of my favorite memories, I think, was when we were driving to your dentist appointment. It was like 3.30 in the afternoon, traffic, sweaty, like, and you said, um, Mama, what is most important to you in life? And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm just trying to like get through traffic, get home. But wait, let me stop and try and think of something deep and meaningful to say right now. But then you were also asking questions of like, what do you think is increasing in the world? Is evil increasing in the world or is goodness increasing in the world? And I, again, I was not prepared to have that discussion, but I love those kinds of questions and I love that you ask those questions. When she's not contemplating the balance of good and evil in the world, Mary is addressing other pressing questions. Is this an emergency? No. Come back later, Alma. What do you want? It's just that show's taking too long. I know. We'll change it when it's done. In the middle of the recording, her daughter Alma came knocking. We needed just a little more time with Ali. So Mary resorted to good old-fashioned bribery. Listen, if you leave me alone and you don't touch this door until I come out, I'll give you a candy of chocolate. Okay. This minor intrusion made us wonder. What about the younger brothers and sister Ali left behind? It's been seven years, I think, since you've been home in Afghanistan. What what is your hope for being reunited with your family? I feel like 
double jump. <laughs> okay. Um, they're growing up so much faster. I'm missing on them, missing out on them, and I really miss them. I want a bright future for them. Ali talks passionately about women's rights in Afghanistan. He wants his sister to receive an education. I don't want my sister to be just over there and mm-hmm. stuck in the home all the time. Uh, just not even be able to go outside. Like, that is basically living in a prison. He wants his brothers to think freely, outside of the Taliban's dictatorship, to move freely in the world. And for my brothers, I want them to feel the freedom to being able to go outside without the fear of there's going to be a bomb explosion or something. And for his mom? For my mom, I want to see her one day. I want to, I want to hear all her complaints again. Unlike perhaps any other teenage boy, Ali wants his mom to bother him about chores again. I want to hear her every morning. Sometimes if I didn't wake up, she would just throw water in my face. <laughs> Get out of your bed and go to do this stuff, go to your chores and stuff. I want to feel that I can. That does it for this episode of Church Meets World. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. And let your friends and family know about the show. Church Meets World is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Maggie Van Dorn, and J.D. Long Garcia. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Sound design by Frank Tucson. This episode was based on an article by J.D. Long Garcia for America Magazine, which you can find at americamagazine.org, and we will link to that article in the show notes. Thanks for listening.